Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. And those of you that have been listening and watching for a while, you know that one of the things, the most powerful thing about being the wolf is doing what's true and right for you, being who you truly are and living a life that reflects and is in alignment with that. So today we are talking about reimagining success because of course there are lots of ideas out there of what success should be. And we're trained, we are taught to believe that that's what we're supposed to go after. And it isn't necessarily the best thing for your wolf self. (laughs) So today I'm here with Dora Fang and we are going to talk about where she's been and where she is now and all the successes she has had along the way. Hello, Dora. I'm so excited. Hello. Good afternoon. (laughs) It is afternoon. I feel like it's been morning for like four days. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's start. You kind of started your life doing the traditional route that stereotypically we are taught that we're supposed to do. Can you tell us where you started on your career path? Right. So went to a good college, went to a fancy grad school, graduated with my MBA and started doing the big city, fancy apartments, social butterfly, high paying corporate jobs, getting relocated, I don't know, probably 10 or 12 times in my career, different company, different job, different city. And was on that circuit and, you know, was outwardly successful and had friends and had fulfillment at work and sometimes had press releases about the deals I worked on. And, you know, by all exterior traditional metrics was doing really well. Did you have like a directive thing that you were working towards? Was there something that was meaningful to you that you kind of chose your jobs based on? Not really. I fell into my first job and then ended up doing similar work, which is business development and strategic partnerships. And I ended up doing it in six different industries. And it was just always come here and create something, a new business, a new service, a new product to sell to our customers and our partners' customers together. So it was always interesting. And the next opportunity I'd get recruited for, and that seems more interesting. So I'd move to another town and take another company and create something new. But that sort of work is also super spiky. But I really liked the stimulation and the creativity and the making something happen out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. When you first started talking, it was like, oh, create, let's get, let's go here and create this. And when you were growing up, did it, was it a directive thing that, hey, you have to go to college, you have to like go do this traditional, stereotypical, successful life. Was that kind of an expected thing for you? Yes, absolutely. My parents were immigrants and they both came to America highly educated. My mom is a retired doctor and my dad had a master's degree. And so education was super important and it was always expected that not only would I go to college, I would go to grad school. 
And beyond that, I was supposed to be a doctor, just like my mom. And I spent age three to 18 telling her that I was going to be a doctor and like come home and hang a shingle like under her name. We would have a joint practice and I get to college and I hate the pre-med track and I dropped out of pre-med within a week of being at Duke University and then I had no idea what I was going to do. But I think that that was one of the beginnings of a non-traditional path of like having the wherewithal to say, I've had this entire concept, my formative years up till, you know, leaving the house for college to be a doctor. And I went to college with like five years of Latin, two biologies, two chemistries, like hardcore pre-med and realized that I didn't like the people that were in my pre-med classes. And that even though I was only 18, I was going to spend like the next 15 to 20 years with these same people, not necessarily exactly the same person, but the exact type of person. And I had the wherewithal at 18 to realize that that would make me really unhappy. And as much as I liked what my mom did for a career, I also am very grateful retrospectively that I'm not a doctor now because medicine has changed dramatically since Mm. she was practicing where it was really more of a small business and getting involved with the community. And she was a pediatrician, but also with oncology and hematology, which is cancer and blood diseases. So she got to do some pretty high level specialty work, but also like be part of a family and their decision to have children and their decision to have another kid and like, kicking out football players when they were 20 and didn't fit in her furniture anymore. And it was a (laughs) very different way of being involved in a patient's life than is possible today. So I'm really glad I'm not a doctor and I have good friends who are doctors and I'm glad it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I look at my own life. I went to college to be a chemical engineer and I just, I didn't, I just picked a major based on what my grandpa did and I got a little ways in. I was like, I don't like this, but I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And so you and I share that similar path. And I think it's pretty common for people to look up to the people around them, people in their family and be like, oh, they're doing this. This will be great for me. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I think we're not really taught to be like, hmm, well, what's really the right and true thing for you? And that's a big part of why I do this podcast is because we are not shown that we can live these lives that are true and unique and special and exactly right for you, falling into what's what you really truly love. Um, I think the more people we see that are doing that, it gives us permission. It allows us to be like, hmm, what is actually right for me? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot to look up to my mom, right? Because she was a doctor. She went to medical school in the 60s, right? It was pretty unusual. And then my father was a stay-at-home dad before that was even a term. So I grew up in this kind of really atypical household, which I think gave me the sort of strength and foundation to make some more unconventional choices, even though there was pressure to like be, you know, successful and be a doctor and, you know, do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of times I see people, it's like one parent did something like unique or they changed careers at 40 and, and it's like, it lays this groundwork for somebody to be like, okay, it is okay for me to do this. The world will not end. Somebody else did it. (laughs) It's going to be okay. Right. So you continued on this path. You bounced around from city to city, working at different places. And then as so many of these stories come to this culmination, this point where it's like, the pandemic hit. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I was busy, you know, getting relocated to Milwaukee to work for Harley Davidson, to San Francisco, to work for eBay. And these were great and really nice external markers of success. But then, you know, as I kept going along this path, eventually the pandemic hit, right? And everything that makes me happy and energized and fulfilled vaporized overnight. Yeah. What were those things? And I know a lot of people can relate, but we all have our special, unique things. So what were the things that normally kept you energized and fulfilled and happy? Right. Well, I think the things that affected a lot of people is that I was laid off from my job and then my parents 
were in assisted living. So there was the terror involved in not being able to visit Mm -hmm. and watching them go in lockdown. And this was the point in the pandemic where if your loved one was dying, you'd have to watch it on a nurse's phone. Right. So it was just this pure powerlessness and out of control of what was going to happen to my parents. And then as far as me, I'm a super happy extrovert who likes to do things. Right. So all of the people and all of the activities vanished. And we were, I was in San Francisco, which was under a very strict shutdown order called shelter in place. And shelter in place is typically for when there's like a disaster and the water main has broken and the firefighters can't come. And it's usually for hours or days. I don't know that it was intended for weeks or months. And it just threw me into this spiral of like, I don't know what I, I didn't have a job. I was terrified. I was anxious. I was depressed. I was mad. You know, I didn't think I had any happy sort of positive adjectives to describe my life for probably five months. Right. And yeah. So after five months of laying in bed and being on a drip feed of cupcakes and margaritas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> we have to get our dopamine fixed somehow. Right. <laughs> I guess, you know, it was the antidote to the doom scrolling because that, that was the only thing that was available was reading more and more terrifying news on the internet. And then yeah, cupcakes and margaritas are doing me no favors either. And ultimately, the only thing that I could change was my environment because nothing in that San Francisco apartment was good for me at that moment. And luckily, about 20 years ago, I had a big sort of outdoor life. I used to run a four-wheel drive company and camped like three weekends a month, including in the snow. So I knew I had the experience, I had gear, and I still had a storage unit in Utah with a, a Jeep in it. So I decided to drive my city car, which is a little sporty wagon, to Salt Lake City and trade my city car for my country car, pick up my camping gear, and headed north to Idaho. I read an article about the uh, Central Idaho Dark Sky Reserve, which is the largest contiguous dark spot on the continent, to see stars. And I was like, well, I like sparkly things, as evidenced by my scarf. And I was like, well, I'll just go look at stars. That seems like a better plan than sitting in my apartment being mad at the world. So got my camping gear and ended up spending three months sleeping outside, doing dispersed camping. So going up a random forest service road, finding a campsite and setting up camp. So no, no neighbors, no facilities, like no running water, no showers, no. And at this point, public campgrounds and private campgrounds are often closed or only offering reservations of every other spot for social distancing. So I just went way out and said, I'll show you social distancing. I'm going to be the world's (laughs) best social distancer. There's going to be nobody around for like 10 miles. I had my dog with me. So that was certainly my companion and a bit of safety. And yeah, I spent the whole summer sleeping in the woods in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and Utah. And I know I've done some things in my life and people are like, oh my God, you're so brave. So I'm sure once you started coming back to civilization on whatever levels you've done that, you had people saying that. Well, I didn't really come back to civilization. I did have to go to town twice a week because I didn't have a refrigerator, not even one that plugged into a cigarette lighter. So I'd have to go to town and get ice and gas. And fresh vegetables and internet, because I was in places where there were no cell towers. So I would just come to town and sort of check in, but it was a small sort of rural or resort or forest service kind of town. I did have friends who were worried about me. And, you know, I had originally left San Francisco saying I was going to go camping for two or three weeks. And then I didn't come home for 195 nights, driven Uh. by two factors. One, I was having a good time out in the woods. And two, there was nothing to come back to. Like San Francisco lifted lockdown briefly in October and then put it back in place right after Christmas. So I was like, well, this, I replaced all of my like people and activities sort of stimulation and happiness with nature and serendipity and discovery and beauty and like sitting still. And, you know, I discovered an inner introvert that I didn't know existed because Mm -hmm. (laughs) without this, external influence, there is no situation I could possibly conceive of where I wouldn't have like been with other people for six months. Yeah. Like six days would have been a stretch, you know, for me, because I would often like double or triple book myself to like see and do as many things as possible. 
So to spend that much time alone and in nature, which is inherently healing, calming, slowing, etc. And I definitely had friends who were like, well, what do you do? <laughs> it's like, I do a whole bunch of nothing. And it's great. Like, if you <laughs> learn to like, watch the leaves rustle, and you learn to like, you know, listen to the water rippling, and you learn to just take a peaceful walk. And certainly I had a dog I could play fetch with. And there was definitely times in the middle of this where I was like, what will people think? And how will I interview to get a new job? And what is this runoff into the woods going to look like, you know, in my career transition and etc. And somewhere along the way, it sort of softened and melted. I was like, well, this is making me happy, right? This is, and if I go back at this point, I thought I still had to. Um, I don't think I'd want to work with somebody who doesn't appreciate this sort of wilderness walkabout that I was on. Right. And yeah. So take us slowly a little bit through that process of cutting ties, right? You're you're severing the technology connection. You're severing the just modern modern conveniences. So I imagine that there was lots of stuff that came up within you during that time. What was the things that sort of came up and for reflection or made you feel anxious or really made that beginning period of that time not so easy? Right. Well, the technology sign-off was basically forced, right? There was no cell signal. Right. And so I, I went to the bottom of the internet and it ended. <laughs> I could only look at the same thing over and over. And that was actually super fascinating because, you know, I'm back into civilization now and I find myself on my phone constantly. But I think it's really good for your brain to disconnect. So that was forced. And then I twice a week update my phone when I went into town and then go back into the woods. But the rest of it was just, what am I supposed to do? What's my next step? Do I, when is the, when, are, when is interviewing going to even start again? Because everything was in lockdown and all hiring was on hold and it was work remotely and headcount freezes and stuff. And so I didn't know how I was going to reintegrate. I didn't know when that was going to begin. And I tried to look for a job when I went to town that twice a week period. But, you know, when you don't respond, if somebody actually responds to you and then you don't respond for three days, it's not the greatest. Right. So I was really joking, kidding myself because I told myself I was going to distill it and do really targeted outreach and then go back into the woods. And it really didn't work very great. So I wasn't really making progress in a job hunt. And luckily, because I was laid off at the beginning of the pandemic, I was eligible for the extended unemployment. And so I was able to do all right with that. And then my San Francisco rent was still being paid. <laughs> but I was sleeping for free in the woods. So that was awesome. <laughs> so I wasn't taking on two housing expenses and I was going to have to buy food regardless. And I wasn't spending any money on restaurants or theater or concerts or museums or any of that because that wasn't available in general, and definitely not in the backwoods of Idaho. So, Right. What did you notice that during that time that you had, it was, well, let me, how do I phrase this? What were the things that you're like, oh, I really didn't need to be doing these things. Like these things actually brought me nothing, but they were so ingrained in that go, go, go lifestyle that I was just so conditioned to doing them. What were the things that were so easy to stay let go of once you connected in a little bit more? Right. I don't know that I didn't enjoy the social life and the go, go, go and the sort of cultural and artistic and musical stimulation. I think I still do enjoy that. I just didn't know there was an alternative version slash different life option for me where I wasn't doing that because I liked it. I was doing it and, you know, it was fun. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things too that I really hear about the beginning part of your story is those were things that fed your spirit and your jobs, while they might've been creative and interesting, weren't necessarily the things that fed your spirit. Is that correct? 
It was. I mean, it was fun when I did, when I crafted a new deal that was really unthought of or impossible, et cetera. So that was really cool. But I really didn't love hierarchy and politics and people who had ideas about this is the way things have always been done because my job was to do things a new way. So I didn't love the corporation's life, but I did like the paycheck. (laughs) 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 And I liked the things the paycheck allowed me to do. Right. Um, And the too long didn't read version is that I have more money to spend now than I did then. And life is great. So it's not like I sacrificed quality of life or the things I get to do to live the way I'm living now. And there's a bit of luck and risk and decision-making that enabled this, but I didn't have to sacrifice the things that I like to do to opt off the hamster wheel. So, you know, I hear that there's this creativity, this think outside the box. These are things that it sounds like are core pieces of who you are. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Awesome. And so when did it, when did it switch? When did it switch from the, I'm just camping for however long to, huh, when was that like mind shift? Like this could be something different. I could make a whole different life. Yeah. Well, there was another huge external impact. I was driving from Utah to Colorado and restocked and ready to be camping for another month or so on the road. And I hit a deer and totaled my Jeep. So I was like, oh, well, now what? Right. So I had to get a tow truck and get towed to the nearest town, which is actually the town I'm sitting in right now, which is Grand Junction, Colorado, which I had no clue would one day be my new home base was just a transitory place I was going to pass through on my way to other adventures when I was driving towards here and ended up here on the flatbed of a tow truck. And as I said, San Francisco was still in lockdown. So I decided to plant here. I had a longtime friend here who was very generous and let me stay at his house while he was traveling. And I ended up being in Grand Junction for three months, October to January, 2020 to 2021, and discovered a sort of medium, small town size that was beautiful, that was full of sunshine, that was friendly, that was notably very affordable, but what is it compared to San Francisco? Right. Uh, Yeah. And then in the middle of this, I've had a property in San Francisco since I moved there for eBay and great long-term tenants. They messaged me and said that they had purchased a house and needed to break their lease, which put a whole new wrench in my program. And I was like, oh, what do I do with this house? After this time, sort of in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, I knew I had already discovered that I didn't want to go back to the San Francisco hamster wheel of life, which is super fun, but it's a hamster wheel, right? Because you have to run this fast to keep up. Otherwise you end up tumbling out and crashing. So I was like, well, I don't want to move back. I lost one of my headphones. Hold on. <laughs> it fell out of my head. Can you still hear me with this one? I can still hear you. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not going to dig for it because I think it's under the desk. Perfect. (laughs) We'll just keep rolling. Yeah. Anyway, so I was like, well, I don't want to move back. And for the first time in anybody's memory, rents in San Francisco had dropped. And so I didn't really think I wanted to rent for a lower amount. So I investigated selling it. Now, in parallel, I had such a nice time at my friend's house. I was thinking, what if I bought a little house here in Grand Junction? So I'd looked at little houses already. And then the opportunity to maybe sell my San Francisco place came up. And I was like, oh, what does that look like? What if I took that money and placed it here? And through a sort of complex tax structure thing called a 1031 exchange, which allows you to push forward all of your taxes, your capital gains and depreciation recapture, I was able to sell San Francisco and invest in other properties. And then I was also had another house in Park City, Utah, which was when I was moved there for backcountry.com. And I kept that when I moved away. I mean, this history of collecting a few houses when I was relocated by a corporation to start a job, I would buy a place with all these hopes and wonder of like this new community and this new career path. And then my job would explode for this reason or that reason. And I, you know, made the decision from 2006 onward that, you know, I was going to keep the house because I liked it. And so all these years underneath as an undercurrent, I've had real estate that I was a remote landlord for, and I just operated it in the nooks and crannies of my life. But, you know, I did a good job because from the very beginning, 
I knew to do credit criminal eviction checks and to you know verify income, verify previous housing situation. And at this point, it's been 17 years, knock on wood, of no evictions, no losses, no legal fees, and successful, happy tenants and good real estate for me. And it was always just something that was in the background when I was doing my corporate jobs. And then the pandemic hit, and I was able to sell San Francisco and sell Park City and do two 1031 exchanges, which then moved my money, which was a combination of equity and appreciation in both those properties and not pay any of the taxes today to push it forward into the next time I might want to buy or sell something. Right. So that sort of batch of money from the two properties, which are both very high cost of living areas, sort of put into a medium cost of living area creates more than enough cash flow for me to live however I would like. So I have a question for you. A lot of people go through their life and their whole idea is like, oh, you know, the American dream. You buy a house, you buy a car, you have the 2.5 kids, all of the things. How did you know to just keep buying property when you moved or keeping the old property, renting it out. Some people know about that stuff and some people don't. But where did you learn about that stuff? I learned about it the first time, you know, I had a wonderful condo in Milwaukee and it was the first place I ever purchased. And I put a lot of emotional energy into buying my first house and I really loved it. So it was really my personal attachment to the property that made me not want to sell it. <laughs> and I um, I placed an ad for potentially renting it as an idea. And I found a great tenant. And I was like, oh, well, this could work. This will cover my mortgage. And then I can go figure out my life while not having this big expense. So it was sort of because I was attached to the places. And same thing with San Francisco. I really liked it. And I had a realtor who I asked for counsel because when I moved away in 2013, that was one of the many sort of intermediate peaks of San Francisco real estate. And she gave super wise advice of like, if you think you're ever going to come back, don't sell it because she's had a multitude of clients who sell and then can't afford to come back into the city. And so I decided to keep it due to her advice. And I was successful at renting Milwaukee and renting San Francisco. And so at this point, when I, my Park City job vaporized, um, I was like, well, I really like this house too. And I've already figured out how to do it on two others in two other states. So surely I can do it in a third one. And, you know, I've, I've always been business and practical minded, right? So I was able to run them remotely and have good relationships with my tenants and get things fixed and kept them all until 2021. And I did this triple twist backflip into other (laughs) markets. And now I just get deposits in the bank account and I don't have to work. So you basically, all the investments that you had made Mm -hmm. energetically, financially, really set you up to make this decision to retire at what age? 45. And what do you get to do now? I get to do whatever I want, which is the most magical part of it, right? And it means waking up whenever I want to, going places I want to, spending time what I'm doing what I want to. And for the last two years, it's been traveling the country and Mexico in an RV. And I plan my schedule around concerts and festivals and campouts, friends, birthdays, weddings, and recently a funeral. And those become sort of pins in the map and the calendar. And Mm -hmm. I stitch together a route. And then along the way, I visit other friends. And it's just been really, really fun. And starting this summer in June, when a rental comes up, I'm going to take it back and start a home base in Western Colorado. Because by June of 2023, it'll be just shy of three years of when I left San Francisco in July of 2020. So it'll be nice to actually have a kitchen and bathroom all to myself when I, you know, a big one, not an RV one, but it's been super fun. And I've gotten to camp on remote beaches and in the Redwood Forest and, you know, in the desert and at all these different regional events. And, you know, I have, I went to a college and a grad school where people came from everywhere and scatter everywhere. And I do a good job of staying in touch with friends. So 
Like just recently I was in through Florida and I visited an old coworker from Utah. I visited a grad school friend from Chicago. I visited a college friend from North Carolina and stitched together this like wonderful group of people. One of the things that I love from the beginning of your story in San Francisco, running around, doing social things, being like double looking, doing all these things. It's like that thing that fed your spirit then is still the thing that's feeding your spirit now. You just get to spread it out. And it sounds like even have more quality time with the people that you want to be connected to. Yeah, I mean, it's a super precious gift of sort of time and resources. And I've sort of happened upon friends that, you know, somebody had just moved and they were sitting overwhelmed in their living room with boxes. And I was like, well, let me just stay for three days and I'll help you, right? (laughs) And she was overwhelmed and overjoyed, right? And then somebody else was going through a bad time and had a favorite artist. And I was like, I'm going to surprise her with a show with like VIP tickets. And it's just really nice to be able to slow down, spend time, be helpful to people and have resources to like surprise people too. Yeah. Yeah. And during this time, you know, you you went to grad school, you were your MBA and a lot of people that you connect to from that place, they have ideas and they're running on the hamster wheels and do you ever feel like you should right there's that dirty word that you should jump back into it or you should do something different than what you're doing now so before I gave up my apartment in San Francisco I hopped back on LinkedIn and took a look at some job descriptions and confirmed that I did not want to do any of that ever again (laughs) And, you know, (laughs) and then I, you know, broke my contract and left. But um, occasionally I still get a recruiter reach out and I look at it. But the answer is no. (laughs) You know, what's interesting, even when I was living pretty simply in a tent in my Jeep in the woods, I had friends who I talked to catch up with occasionally and they were actually envious of the sort of freedom and flexibility I had. And they had a very fancy job and a very nice house and a very perfect looking family, et cetera. And they were jealous of a girl sleeping in the woods. And I was like, oh goodness, that's so fascinating. And then in my travels over the last two years in the RV, I've encountered friends across all stages of their sort of careers and professional lives. And people are getting to see a new version of what happiness could look like when they talk to me about what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's fortunate. Yeah, that's one of the things that's such a blessing. And I think the pandemic gave people that opportunity to reevaluate and really look at what is meaningful because all of those things that we used to fill our time with were taken away. Yeah. I know for me, I just dove deeper and deeper into learning and growing and getting better at my craft and It was a gift for me to have that time to work on the writing, to work on all of that and really slow down enough to focus on the things that were the most important to me, with the exception of spending a lot of time with friends because we were also in lockdown in New York. (laughs) Right. I mean, I think it's been really eye-opening that I don't miss work at all. So I think that was Mm -hmm. the thing I was doing that was not actually what I love doing, but I was good at it and was compensated well for it and seemed like the right thing to do according to traditional society markers of success. Yeah. Right. And, but I am so much happier now. I've had friends who've known me for 15, 20 years tell me that they've never seen me happier. And that's really a nice thing to still hear. Yeah, especially when they can see it in your face. And what I hear too, and what you're doing, it's like you're still creating because you're creating these adventures, you're planning these adventures. So you're still doing some of that strategic work. And you are doing these things of connecting, you're being able to be generous, you're doing all of the things that it sounds like we're always important to you. You were just able to weed out all the other stuff. 
I think so. I mean, and for example, like going to Mexico by myself was a big adventure because I don't speak the language. I am trying to learn Spanish, but I'm certainly not fluent. And there's a lot of legend and lore about how terrifying Mexico is. And there's certainly isolated incidents that are awful, but there's also thousands of miles of beautiful country, right? So the sort of all of that analytical work and strategic planning and figuring out what I was going to do along with a good bit of flexibility is I just drove down there and, you know, I spent five weeks in Baja last year. I spent four weeks there this year. It's gorgeous and beautiful and people are warm and the food is delicious and it's just really wonderful in the like, undersea life, right? The whale sharks and the mm. whales and the just everything is gorgeous down there. And I would never have done that without this opportunity to just drive down in my RV and spend weeks at a time. Yeah. And one of the things too, you're traveling. So you give up, you let go of a lot of things. I know uh, when I walk the Camino de Santiago, right? You're carrying everything on your back and you start to really realize how little you actually need. And we start and we think about how much stuff we have. Mm -hmm. I remember when I lived in San Francisco, I moved from like one house to the next and I downsized a little bit, one house to the next and I downsized a little and thank God they raised my rent 500 bucks in one swoop from one place to the next because I had to downsize and my next move was to New York. (laughs) It's like, there's no way that downsizing would have been way too difficult. Right. I went from I was, a big loft to a small one bedroom in the tenderloin and then to across the country. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was unfortunately enabled by my corporate job offers. I had relocation packages, so they would just pack and ship my stuff and then unpack it on the other end. So I never had an incentive to really downsize. But for six months, I basically lived out of my Jeep. And that's a pretty small unit. And so I I was, I learned that I didn't need much. Frankly, when I was leaving San Francisco for this quote, two week camping trip, by the time I was October, I had to go buy like a down jacket and a winter hat and some gloves because I didn't have those with me. But it was really interesting to see what I, what I could live on and then what I needed to add. And for the last two years, I've lived in 188 square feet, including the car that drives it. Right. And one of the reasons I'm going to have a home base in Western Colorado starting the summer is I'm going to doing a little tiny home ADU build, and it's going to be palatial at 400 square feet. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to more than double my space. So, um, and it's going to be fun. And it's a new place to, you know, stick my brain to work is to, you know, figure out blueprints and electrical drawings and what kind of countertop I want and what kind of cabinet handles I want and et cetera. There's so there's a bazillion choices when you're doing a build. There's that creativity thing again. And one of the things that is really cool about that when you downsize and I know like I have less and less stuff. I keep getting rid of stuff. And when I buy and a big piece of this is because my nervous system is calm And my emotional like triggers, I've worked on clearing those out of my nervous system. So all of that, like need, 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 because I wasn't maybe so happy or feeling good in my own skin isn't there. But what I do is if I don't love, love, love it, I don't buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I had to move my parents into assisted living a bit unexpectedly in 2015, 16. And then I had to go empty out their house. And I'm an only child. So it was a very in my face lesson of like, here is a house of belongings. And I'm sure it meant something at the moment they acquired it. But then here I am trying to plow through it and do donations and trash. And it was a big struggle. And down to one storage unit with their stuff and a little bit of my stuff. But I'm looking forward to, you know, sort of living much more simply. And I definitely spend my money on experiences, on concerts and festivals and, you know, delighting people and charity. It's really, really a different way to live. Yeah. And what's your favorite thing about being able to go wherever you want? That I don't have to worry. It's such a gift to not have to worry about 
because the sort of the, the magic of this current stage of my life is that I'm living off the cash flows of a real estate portfolio. And real estate, whether slowly or quickly, will continue to appreciate. So I'm not actually drawing down. Like a lot of people in the FIRE movement, which is financial independence, retire early, they get to a million dollars and then they can live on $40,000 a year based on, you know, this 4% withdrawal rule. But every year they're taking $40,000 out and hoping that the market corrects that and gives them enough money to live for the rest of their life. But for my situation, the sort of portfolio is staying the same or growing slowly or quickly, depending on your opinion of real estate and what it's doing. And so I just get to do, I have ultimate freedom and flexibility and security also. And just it's really such a wonderful gift and nothing I planned on this early in my life. And it's really a gift. I mean, my parents did the classic defer, delay and wait, and we'll do it later. We'll travel later. We'll sell the house later. And they didn't get it. You know, my dad died last year. My mom's mm. assisted living and they had, or now my mom, they, there's time and there's money, but they don't have the health or the energy to be able to use it. So I've got, you know, their slash her assets now. And all I can do is pay for their care which is somebody to change the sheets, somebody to bring her lunch. And it feels like it's such a risk to wait and wait and wait because you might not get it, right? Because at any stage in life, you need resources slash money, you need health slash energy, and you need time to be able to enjoy life. And, you know, at any point, if you're still alive, you have some combination of those three, But the lesson I learned was that you actually can't guarantee the presence of any of those. There's nothing you can do to guarantee time, money, or health. And so it's been really wonderful to just pull the ripcord and go enjoy life now. And it's certainly fortune and privilege to get to do it in the way I'm doing it now. And I love it. 100%. That is such a big piece of all of the be the wolf thing, right? We get to enjoy the process, be here now and create these lives that we love, however that looks for each individual person. And um, so how do people get, if people want to get in touch with you, if they have questions like, Dora, tell me, how do I actually do this kind of success? I mean, everybody's got this is thing where I'm reimagining success. It's got to be the success that's important for each individual person. And and so much throughout everything you shared, there were some pieces that show up over and over again. So it's like you could do, you could have success in lots of different areas, but which is the way that feeds your spirit the most? Um, So how is it that people contact you or say hello or maybe look at pictures of (laughs) places you've been and some of the experiences you're having? Sure. Well, if anybody is interested in my professional path that led to this, I'm on LinkedIn and I think you have a link to that. And then as far as social media, I try to keep my Facebook page fairly small and personal because I post about family and finances on that a little bit more. But publicly, I have an Instagram at Dora the Vagabond and it's Dora the Vagabond. And I used to have one with my full name. And in my travels, I realized that it's probably not the smartest as a solo female to have everybody have my exact full legal name right away. So yeah. that one still exists, but I'm doing more posting on the Vagabond account. And it also ties into what I've decided my new tagline is, which is professional vagabond on permanent vacation. And yeah, and that came from, you know, earlier when people were like, how long is this trip? Like, when are you coming? I was like, no, it's not a trip. It's like the rest of my life and for as long as I want and until I feel like it. So the permanent vacation came from that. And um, I post in big batches on Instagram, typically later, it's the later gram idea. Um, (laughs) So I think I'm only caught up to when I was in Baja in January. So I'm about two months late at this point. But I generally post like four or six weeks at a time. And then there'll be a flood of content. And then messaging me through Instagram would be the easiest way. And I think that real estate is this less understood way to get to early retirement because my passive income slash cash flow more than pays for my life. And I'd be happy to share 
more details of how that happened and what I did, or people want to understand the 1031 exchange more, et cetera, I'd be happy to share on that because it's been life-changing literally for me. Yeah. And I, and I think about one of the things about real estate and you alluded to it because it's appreciating in theory, your rents are increasing, your um, property value is increasing. So in theory, it should keep up with inflation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in did a, so in 2021, I had 12 real estate closings and in normal life, people are fortunate when they get to do like one every eight to 12 years. So the fact that I did 12 in one year is outrageous, especially because I'm not a real estate professional. But um, I sold three and bought nine. But what what the key thing here is when I did all these um, purchases in 2021, that was when realist interest rates were really low. Yeah. So for me, for inflation, I've got debt on a couple of properties, but they're all fixed for 30 years at the low rates that happened in 2021. And rents go up with inflation. So in a sort of weird way, inflation is good for me, right? right? Because my debt costs the same and the rents I can ask mm. for increase. And so in the, some of the houses that I have debt on are new construction. So there's not a lot of risk of like the dishwasher is going to go or they're right. going to need a new roof, et cetera. So I don't have to put a lot into reserves and the interest rates are actually helping me at the moment. Awesome. I know it's really weird and it feels a little strange to be happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly see it at the restaurants and at the grocery stores and at concert tickets, et cetera. But the bulk of my money is through rents and cash flow and the spread between what I can command and market rent and the debt that I have to service is growing larger when inflation increases. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm not trying, you know, let's be clear. I'm trying to provide good housing at a fair price and right. I've never wanted to be, you know, there was definitely properties that I looked at that I was like, nope, that's not the sort of landlord I want to be. And I've done that my whole quote unquote career. Now that apparently I'm a real estate person, sometimes I call myself a land baroness when people are like, oh, oh you're I a real estate it. mogul. And I was like, no, no, I'm a land baroness. A land baroness, um, a yeah. professional vagabond, I'm terminal yeah. vacation, yeah. all of these things are beautiful titles. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Love it. And so for those of you that are out there that are looking to reimagine your success in your career, creating the kind of life that you truly want, reach out. Reach out. Let's have a conversation to see if what I have to offer you will help you reimagine and create the kind of success that you know deep in your heart is true and right for you. And you can do that at elevatebookacall.com. If you're driving, do not open a browser. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> open a browser. Type in elevatebookacall.com. And yeah, let's have a conversation. And now, Dora. One last thing, if there is anything you would give, any advice you would give to your past self or maybe the people listening, what would be the one thing that you would tell your past self and the people listening? I would really examine your definition of success and what that means and what it looks like because I thought I was happy and successful and I didn't know any difference. And I, the pandemic created this huge shift in my life and allowed me to slow down and be with myself and appreciate nature and launched me into this whole new life that I never imagined. And I think if I was very stuck on, I have to get back to a big city, I have to get another big paying corporate job, I have to, et cetera, I never would have the opportunity to be where I'm at. So just re-examine what you think success is. And if you're paying the right cost to achieve that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It's it's so much about not getting caught up in what you think you're supposed to do, mm -hmm. whether it's an old version of what you thought you were supposed to do, right? What was right for you 10 years ago might not be right for you now. So, or if it's society's version of what you think you should do, but connecting to yourself and really re-examining what success means for you. Yeah. 
And security yeah. is a bit of an illusion, right? You think you're secure. You think you won't get laid off. And a lot of people are getting a wake-up call, right. unfortunately, recently in the last six months for that. And you think everything's fine. And then you've built this life that's dependent on something that isn't actually secure. So. Right. The only security you have is you. Yourself. Yeah. You. Yeah. Totally. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and so many of our parents, right, they worked in jobs for 40 plus years. And I think the statistics are something like the average person will have three to six career changes in their life and 12 different jobs. So there is no bend over backwards, sacrifice yourself for the company because you just never know what's going to yeah. happen. So yeah. don't sacrifice, yeah. do what's right for you. Exactly. I read somewhere recently, like the company doesn't love you back. And it's just absolute truth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Bottom lines everywhere. I mean, there are some really great companies out there, that which is absolutely true. And for the most part, most people are stuck in the bottom line model. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your story and showing people what this other kind of success can be. And you're a light, you're sparkly, all of the things, those things make me happy. Thank you. And so thank you so much for connecting with us and sharing this story. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right, everybody, we will see you next time on Be the Wolf. You all keep living true to who you are, doing the things that make you feel good about yourself, make you feel good about what you do, and together doing that, living in that way, we will evolve and elevate the world. So thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.